This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. The nurses at UW Health will officially issue a strike notice to hospital administrators tomorrow, clearing the way for, for an official strike later this month. The nurses have been fighting for union recognition since 2019 after their previous union dissolved after Act 10. While hospital administrators say that Act 10 does not allow for the hospital to recognize any union, multiple legal memos, including by the state's nonpartisan legislative council, say that Act 10 only removed the obligation to recognize a union. They are still able to voluntarily recognize any union put forward by the nurses, claim the legal memos. The nurses plan to strike for three days, starting on September 13th. Harry Waite, the man who fraudulently requested absentee ballots for multiple government officials, has been charged with voter fraud. The state Justice Department announced today that Waite has been charged with two counts of election fraud and two counts of unauthorized use of a person's personal identifying information. Waite requested the ballots of several state officials, including Assembly Speaker Robin Voss and Racine Mayor Corey Mason, before the partisan primary election last month in order to prove vulnerabilities in the state's absentee ballot system. Waite then publicly bragged about his actions to state officials as well as to the Racine County Sheriff. His initial court hearing has been set for next Thursday at 2 p.m. With the federal program for requesting free COVID tests being suspended tomorrow, the state health department is stepping up to provide their own free test instead. As part of the new Say Yes COVID test program, Wisconsin residents can go online and request a package of five rapid antigen COVID tests to be mailed to them free of charge. The program is being funded in part through the American Rescue Plan and funds from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. The program starts today, and folks can request their free COVID test at sayyescovidhometest.org. After almost all of the sewing and printing workers at Crushinit Apparel, a Madison screen printing company, were fired earlier this week, workers picketed the business today or yesterday. The Capital Times reports that nine workers were laid off after they signed a joint letter asking the owner for more timely pay and better working conditions. Employees say that they had, on multiple occasions, had their paychecks bounce. Employees also say that some of them had to purchase their own fans to keep cool while the large heat transfer machines were running and were not provided safety equipment. The owner, Jeremy Crook, Crook, uh, called the picket quote, extortion, and said that most of the employees' criticisms were unfounded. Today is the first day of school for many Madison students, and Channel 3000 reports that the district is still facing around 125 staff openings. Those openings do not account for positions with accepted offers, but the district is still waiting to process those offers. On Tuesday, the district had 134 teacher openings. District spokesperson Tim Lamont told Channel 3000 that the district offers out over 100 open positions, but did not say how many of those offers have been accepted. But completing the hiring process for those positions could still take days into the beginning of the school year. In the meantime, the district has 275 substitute teachers available as long-term subs who would be able to work the full school year if needed. 
the Tenney Lock and Spillway connecting late Lake Mendota to Lake Monona will be closed for the rest of the year. The Wisconsin State Journal reports. The lock is the largest of three boat locks on the Yahara River and allowed boats easy passage between the two lakes. The county parks department issued a notice saying that the lock is experiencing some mechanical issues after an electrical storm hit the lock. And now on to today's top stories. In the continuing saga of city and county projects going over budget due to inflation, the Madison public market is now well over budget, so much so that the entire project could be in question. WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout has more. The Madison Public Market is planned to be a year-round public market where small businesses and minority business owners can get their start. According to the project's website, it would hold fresh produce, food stands, merchant space for local artists, and community rooms. And I really think it's important to understand that this is a, a market that uh, that's built to enhance economic opportunity for people of, of all types in, in Madison. Um, the mission is very much all about uh, supporting the, the BIPOC community and helping them to become independent business people. That's Jim Shulkin, a board member of the Madison Public Market Foundation, the group that would run the market slated to be built at the First Street Fleet Building. He says the market is envisioned as a public space to uplift underrepresented business owners. But construction on the project has been pushed from this fall to, at the soonest, next spring. And because the project is now more than $5 million over budget, tough choices may be ahead. The idea for a Madison public market has been around for over 15 years, but the Madison Common Council finally approved the plan for the market back in 2015 with a budget of around $14 million. But as the pandemic hit in 2020 and the price of labor and materials skyrocketed, the market, like many other city and county projects, quickly found itself outgrowing its budget. According to a memo sent to the Public Market Development Committee by Matthew Mikolajewski, director of the city's Economic Development Division, inflation only accounts for around $1.7 million. Another reason for the rising price tag is the loss of over $3 million in federal funds. The city of Madison had been working to secure a grant with the Federal Economic Development Administration, or EDA, to help cover the costs of the project. But it was forced to withdraw its grant application after failing to commit to covering the inflated costs for the project. This means that, unless the city can find a way to cover that $5 million, they cannot go forward with the project this year. Alder Patrick Heck, who sits on the Public Market Development Committee, says that if they can't find the funding, it could tank the whole project. And there are several options, uh, none of which, in my mind, are particularly uh attractive, but that doesn't mean that uh, those options or some combination of those options can't, can't be finagled, I guess would be the right word. It's, it's not going to be easy, uh, but uh, there, there certainly are paths forward. 
The city could use more tax money from the district where the market will sit, but that would mean taking money away from other priorities in the area. Alternatively, the city could borrow more money, but Alder Heck says that taking out more loans could impact interest rates on future projects. Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway, who could not be reached for comment today, is expected to release a draft of her 2023 budget next week. Alder Heck says that he does not know what the future of the project will look like. It's, it's a tough problem, and um, it could be that the mayor uh, decides to let Common Council figure out how to handle this, but I don't really know that. I think it's, it's, it's a tough problem because so many people are in favor of the public market from, from what I see. It's a, it, it has the potential to be a fantastic facility, and people are extremely in support of the Market Ready program. And, and other components of the public market, but it is increasingly expensive. So, I, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough calculation, both for the mayor and for council. While the project team behind the market estimates that around $1 million can be cut without negatively affecting the market, that won't be enough to save the project. That means that the city will have to find at least $4 million in funding to keep the project afloat. But Jim Shulkin says that even these cuts could bring negative impacts down the road. There are some things that we, we want to be included in the, in the final capital uh, budget or sorry, in the construction budget that will make uh, a former fleet building, a garage, much nicer space for the public to be using. So a lot of it has to do with renovations of um, replacing windows, putting in a solar uh, heating system, um, and making it a place where we'll save some money because of the solar heating system, and also because it'll be the kind of place where people want to come and have special events. Shulkin says that while getting rid of some of these features would save money up front, it could affect the bottom line going forward. And Shulkin says that those responsibilities would ultimately fall on the Public Market Foundation and not the city of Madison. Shulkin says that he hopes the city adds the needed funding in the next budget. And if the mayor doesn't include the $5 million next week, the foundation intends to ask the Finance Committee to include it instead. The city's finance committee will discuss the budget shortfalls for the Madison public market on September 12th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. It's now 6.17 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. It's the first Thursday of the month, and that means a new paper edition of Isthmus is on newsstands around Madison today. And today's issue is a packed one. WORT producer Nate Wegehout sat down with Isthmus senior reporter Dylan Brogan earlier to break down a potentially 
exploitative lieutenant governor campaign the next year's election to decide Madison's mayor and polls looking for attack ad ammunition. Okay, Dylan, new Isthmus out today. It's a packed one, so we're covering a couple things in uh, today here. And let's start off with uh, Ping Her, who ran to be a Democratic candidate for lieutenant governor uh, here in Wisconsin, and he's also the CEO of the uh, Hmong Institute. So Her is accused by multiple sources of taking advantage of Hmong elders to collect signatures in order to get on the ballot, correct? Tell me a little bit about that. Sure. So I was, uh, yep, I was contacted and then I dug a lot more into it. And basically what happened was um, during uh, the Hmong Institute has food drives for the community, the Hmong community, uh, its clients that provide, it provides services for uh, and, and for the public. So during these food drives, um, there, what was told to me uh, was that basically it was like, here's your food box. Oh, and also here are these nomination papers. Well, a lot that I, I think started off as a little bit as confusing to some people because they didn't feel like it was fully explained, and then and then other Hmong elders were uh, pretty uh, like upset about it um, for a variety of reasons that they kind of felt like it was, hey, you're I'm accepting uh, free food here, and is, this seems like an obligation, or maybe that like I had no idea what the office was, or whether this means I'm voting for you, and that it doesn't mean that. Uh, these are just signatures to get on the ballot, right? Um, and, and as well as there are a lot of conservatives and Republicans in the Hmong community who, you know, didn't like that either. So it was, a, you know, a tricky story and we put it out there and yeah, just spent a lot of time trying to corroborate these sources. So, uh, Pangher denies that, you know, it was exchanging free food for, uh, for a nomination signature, but we also get into, you know, how that's at least flirting with, uh, some campaign and IRS violations. And yeah, I do kind of want to get into some of those uh, campaign violations there. So, uh, well, if, allegedly, uh, allegedly, if if her had uh, done this, and you know, let's on, say her you know, didn't do it, someone else. Sure, let's say someone else a, did it. A nonprofit. There we go. Yes, uh, it was exchanging a service or a good or something of value, uh, but the catch was you had to sign a nomination paper. That is definitely a violation of campaign finance laws. Uh, nonprofits have to, have to also be very careful, 5013Cs, that they are not involved in any political activity. And then there, um, the, there's a, a third prong of it, and that is also just having to do with campaign finance laws. Now, if you rent a space from a nonprofit, right, and that maybe that happened, or maybe that, like, you have to have, that's an in-kind contribution that needs to be noted. And uh, at least in her situation, there, you know, there was no in-kind contributions, but people are alleging that, you know, essentially use his role in the community and the nonprofit to further his, his candidacy. All right, and moving on, like I said, packed edition uh, this month of the Isthmus. So yeah, we turn the page there. Next story. I love being able to turn the page. I love, I love my physical copy there. But then you get into, uh, you know, the next year's election, I know that that last story that we were just talking about, that's sort of had to do with the November election, but we don't really get a chance to finish one election here uh, before we start worrying about the next one. Uh, race for Madison's mayor. Uh, what what? Tell me a little bit about what you found there. Well, just a little teeny bit, but I think it's important to note that four years ago, right, also a, a midterm election or an important midterm election uh, year. Uh, there were three candidates already in the race for Madison mayor. We had three candidates who were actively running. Now, uh, so far, 
Um, it sure seems like the current mayor, Satya Rhodes Conway, is uh, she's. D- She's actively campaigning in terms of fundraising and meeting with folks, but she hasn't officially announced yet. Um, and it also looks like someone else whose name has been floated is uh, she, Gloria Reyes. She's the she's a former police officer. She worked as a deputy mayor under the Sagal administration. She um, was on the Madison School Board president, pretty well known in the community, very well known in the community. She also runs a, a group called, a political group called Adelante. Uh I uh, she's been her name has been floating out there for a while. I heard she was, um, you know, kind of telling people more, perhaps more than she was that, you know, she's definitely running for mayor. And so I, I asked her and she said she's seriously considering a run. So I would say it's a very good bet that we'll at least have a, a competitive mayor's race in 2023. And there might be more competitors that that drop in. That's true. We're, we still there's a lot of time to go before before yes. we actually have to get there. So there's still definitely well, and the time. filing deadline is not till January. So there's a long time. And then, so obviously, you sort of mentioned it there. Uh, current mayor Satya Rhodes Conway is sort of going to be the one that everyone everyone who does end up uh, going for. It seems like they're going to be going up against her. And even if she hasn't officially announced her reelection campaign yet, what what did you find? What's going on with uh, the mayor these days? Well, she has raised about $20,000 um, in her re-election bid. She's paying a campaign consultant to do something, right? Probably help her uh, <laughs> figure out what her re-election campaign would look like. So I'd say it's uh, she hasn't announced that she's officially in yet, but she's she's taken all the steps then uh, and is kind of way ahead of Gloria Reyes, just according to the campaign finance reports. These mayoral races are getting increasingly expensive and sophisticated, and that's just sort of the way of the world. Um, but it looks like we're going to, yeah, like I said, we're going to have a competitive mayoral race, but that's to be expected. And it does look like, you know, Satya Rhodes-Conway is seeking another term. But who knows? She hasn't said for sure. All right. And the very final thing yes. that we've got here today, attack ads. It is, you know, it's political season. We're going we're going to be seeing them. Well, it would tell me a little bit just to sort of start things off. Attack ads. What, what did you find with that? Well, I happened, just happened, I don't know how they got my number, but I, for some reason, I get a lot of polls. People call me up for polls. So I found this one really interesting because it, it was very unclear who the pollster was. But what they were doing was they were testing possible attack ads against uh, Democratic Senate and Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. Right? He's running for Senate against uh, Republican Ron Johnson. So it, it was like a 20-minute call, basically, with one sentence of, uh, you know, uh, that was you know, pretty, the words were not kind to Mr. Barnes, right? Uh, And they brought up a lot of things that Republicans have tried to embarrass him in the past about, and some have more merits than others. You want to go through what, what they, what these attack ads, what Mandela Barnes might be facing in terms of TV attack ads? Sure, let's do that. I would just like to point out, I too got one of those, yeah. uh, except for the other side. It was very much against Ron Johnson, although it was the same thing. It was sort of hard to tell uh, exactly yeah. exactly who was sort of putting it out, but it definitely seemed to sort of, you know, pile in on Ron Johnson there. So, yeah, let's, let's, let's sort Both of go. Both sides yeah. do this, right? And what are they doing, though? They're trying to, they, I mean, they're market testing what lines are going to get people to change their minds. And, like, not even a lot of people. Like, how can they move? the needle like one percent should we go after ron johnson on climate change or should we go after him on medicare and social security so a similar thing uh, that's funny that you got a call like that um so one of them was uh uh so basically they asked okay does this make you do you feel 
more favorable, uh, somewhat favorable, or somewhat unfavorable, or unfavorable about uh, you know this Democratic politician. And one of them was a ba- basically uh, attacking Barnes for not chairing this climate change uh, task force that. There's some clip out there where Barnes, I guess, admits that they didn't really do very much. Uh, you know, I don't know how an average voter sort of makes sense of that. That's a little bit more complicated than that. But, you know, uh, there's a Republican legislature. Climate change is a tricky issue. I don't know. Uh, and then there was another one about uh, a clip that kind of made the rounds in uh, July, and it's Barnes saying that slavery was awful and that the founding of this nation is terrible. And you could pick this out, and it sounds like he's calling America awful. Again, a little bit more complicated than that. Uh, There was another one about an activist in 2015 that got into some sort of little back and forth with uh, Mandela Barnes. His name is Miles Christian. I'm sure there are plenty of people that know him. But they're asking, uh, you know, they were going after Barnes for supposedly pushing him and then accusing Republicans of race baiting afterwards. And then the final one was about a Victoria's Secret lingerie party that Mandela Barnes was in 2009. I guess he was a co-host of on Facebook. Barnes says, you know, he I, he admits he, he was there. He doesn't go into much detail, but that he wasn't like his party. How he got at as a co-host uh, is a little unclear, um, but he says it was like immature. And the and the Facebook uh, post in 2009 definitely is a little derogatory towards women. Um, but again, they went after him in 2018 for this too, and that it didn't seem to get much traction. But that's why they're testing it. And then finally, I got a call uh, that was, um, you know, for basically just it was really funny because it's only like three minutes long, and it was basically saying, I guess, I think it's called a push poll, but it was like Republican governor candidate Tim Michaels, and it was like supports every kind of gun in the world. <laughs> and, and like, do you do you, does that make you like him more? And and so that's sort of how I end the piece. Here. So we have some fun items there, and uh, yeah, but man, politics is is ugly business, isn't it? Yes, it is, and uh, yeah, that, that we're certainly in a political season. If you watch any TV, you will find that out right away. Well, Dylan, that's all the time we have for today. We only really gleam the surface of all the things that not just that we talked about, but there's a whole lot more in the Isthmus that came out just today. So go check out everything in this month's issue, either online at isthmus.com or hey, pick up a paper copy. I always like having a paper yeah, copy, or just, do both, or do both. I I like having my paper copy and then i have it up on my computer dylan thanks for talking with me thanks nate the time is now 6 33 and you're listening to the local news on wort i'm your host marcus slayton here with fellow host stacy harbaugh thanks for joining us Every other Thursday, our contributor Jonah Chester sits down with Tom Kamenick, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to discuss open records and open government. This week on Transparency Talk, they cover how to file an open records request for a public official who's already left office. Now, a quick note that this conversation isn't specific legal advice, so please seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government. All right, it is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line, as is tradition, by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how you doing this week? 
Jonah, I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing just fine and dandy. It is a beautiful, sunshiny day, and I am ready, as always, to talk open records and open government. And I'm really excited, Tom, because this week the topic was my idea. And we're talking about records of former office holders. Tom, let's start off today. What happens to records of former government officials who have left office? So you want to start by looking at the record retention law, which is in the statutes. It's in the same chapter as the open records law, but it's really a, a whole different set of provisions. And one of the key ideas in that law is that the records belong to the office, not the officer. So they go with the position, not the person in the position. So the statute requires that when you leave office, you turn over everything to your successor. Let's take a hypothetical example here. If I wanted records from the administration of Scott Walker, I would still file those with the Evers administration, correct? They would they would theoretically still have those records buried somewhere since it's the governor's office. Correct. Uh, records from Walker's time in office are still held by the office of governor of the governor, so you would make the request to Tony Evers. Now, there's, there's something called a public records board that sets forth specific timelines for how long records have to be kept. I don't know how many of the records from 2001 in the next, next eight years are still in the office, but that would be the place to start. One little fun caveat with this is uh, the law also requires a whole bunch of records to be offered to the Wisconsin Historical Society. And they kind of archive the most important stuff from government. And they don't accept every single piece of paper. They, they kind of have their own schedule of what they actually want for uh, for posterity. Got it. So if, I, if I'm filing a record for like somebody who served in like the 1970s or 80s, I'd probably be better off just going straight to the Historical Society and checking in with their archives as opposed to going to the governor's office. Yeah, they hold a lot. They have a central office in Madison uh, in an old library building there, a very large old library building there. But they also have satellite offices and a lot of the extensions around the state, the UW extensions, have archives of Wisconsin historical records for their area. But you start by going to the Historical Society and say, you know, I want to see uh, census records from the fifties or budgets from the 1920s and see what they have. You know, for those of us who just like to spend our weekend perusing the state budget from like 1924 <laughs> or whatever, prompted by no event in the news in particular, what happens if somebody takes the records with them when they leave office? Yeah. So we're, we're still talking about state officers, despite the allusion to Mar-a-Lago there. Uh, there, it, there does not appear to be a suit under the open records law to get those because you can only file suit against an authority. That's the word that's used. And an authority has to be either a government office or an elected, currently elected official. Once you stop being the office holder, you can't be sued under the open records law because you're not subject to the law anymore. So that raises the question of, well, the, the person A was supposed to turn it over to their successor person B, so can you sue person B? Can you sue the successor for those records that uh, the original office holder took with them? And probably not, because the law says that authorities have to turn over records in their possession, and they don't have them anymore. So what, what can you do about this? And the answer under state law might be not a whole lot. There is a provision in the records retention law saying that the new officer can sue the old one for any records they took with them, or the municipality or government entity can. So sometimes this comes up where 
uh, say there's a there's a sheriff and the sheriff believes that the uh, election of their successor was improper somehow. So they refuse to turn over the office and they, they take their, their stuff with them. Well, the, the new sheriff could sue the old sheriff and get a declaration of who's really the sheriff now and get the records back, too. So so a lot of ambiguity in this space. It's a case of like state lawmaker, you make it off the Capitol Square. It's almost like Ollie Ollie oxen free. I'm out of here. <laughs> Yeah, it's illegal, but there's not necessarily a whole lot you can do about it. Uh, it's it's even harder, po- probably, if an employee, a former government employee, not an officer, but just a, a rank-and-file front-level employee takes records with them because they're not an authority. Uh, under the statute about suing, suing uh, or a successor shui- suing their predecessor, that only applies to officers, not employees. There might be some kind of common law civil suit. There's something called a replevin where you ask a court to order somebody to to turn over property that belongs to you if they have it in their possession. You might be able to do that, but it's I'm not aware of that ever happening. And it's be be interesting to see what what happened if somebody tried it. Now, I wanted to touch a little bit on the Presidential Record Act, which we've sort of mentioned in brief in passing on the show before. But can you give me a background on that? What is the PRA? Yeah, you have the same idea that the records of the presidency belong to the presidency and not the person who happened to used to be a president. It's not their personal property. It doesn't belong to them. It belongs to the office. If that idea goes way, way back, uh, even to to Britain, our former ties with them, the queen or the king, the monarch, own certain things in their office as monarch, but they also have separate personal possessions that don't flow to their successor necessarily. So FOIA itself, the Federal Freedom of Information Act, doesn't actually apply to the presidency. It only applies to legislative, uh, I'm sorry, to executive agencies. So the, the EPA and the DOJ and all the alphabet soup of agencies. But the Presidential Records Act does require the keeping of a lot of those presidential records, and it makes them available about five years after that president leaves office. So not immediately, but you're expected to be able to see them in the fairly near future. So that is interesting, though, because there's like that that connecting line between, you know, the state and the feds where it's assumed, you know, the records aren't the individual persons, the records are the offices, whether it's the governor's office or the, the president's office, the White House, essentially. Right. You're almost holding it in trust for the people or or at least for the next person who's going to have your office. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we've come to the end of our show for this week. I've been joined on the other end of the line, as is tradition, by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, thanks, as always, for talking with me. It's always a good time, Jonah. And remember, everybody, if you don't ask, you won't know. Today is the first day of September, which means that it's time to get ready for fall pumpkin spice, warm sweaters, and of course, fall fishing. This week on Fishy Business, WRT producer Nate Wiggyhout and Pat Hansberg with the DNS Bait Shop take a look at what fish look for in the fall weather. All right, I am on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Uh, first day of September here. Pat, how's the fishing been lately? Well, it's actually, it's been good, but it uh, seems to have slowed down just a little bit. We're kind of getting into this fall transition where I feel like um, fish have 
you know, the, the perch are kind of in a mood where they're, they're waiting for fall to come. The walleyes are kind of in a mood where they're waiting for fall to come. And, um, so the, the bite is turned off just a little bit recently, but uh, there's some good times ahead for sure. Yeah, the fish fish seem to uh, understand. September's really that sort of, well, sometimes it still feels like summer, but then sometimes it still feels like fall, uh, sort of right in the middle there. In general, looking at September fishing, what what can we expect this time of year? Well, it's pretty, like you said, it's, it's sort of a weird mix depending on the day. It could be a, a day like, um, you know, in... August or July even where it could be humid and hot it could be a day like you might find in October where it's cool and cloudy and cold and you know it's that cooler weather that's really going to get the fish going and when they put the feed bag on kind of preparing for fall but it's the warmer days that might slow them down uh, but you know it's it's just uh, can be a, a kind of an up and down month. And the weather's been pretty fair this past week, uh, minus some storms that we had last weekend. But let's just sort of start off at the top of the list. Lake Mendota, what's been happening over there? Well, Lake Mendota, there's a lot of perch in in the lake right now, a lot of smaller fish, but they're still getting some perch on the weed lines. And that's been very productive uh, most of the summer. It just depends on whether or not you can find the fish that people consider keepers. So, like I said, there's a lot of small fish in the system right now, and that bodes well for ice fishing uh, and, and, and future um, years for, for fishing the perch. But um, like right now, folks are sorting through a lot of small fish to try to find some keepable fish. Otherwise, uh, the smallmouth bass and walleye continue to be caught in good numbers out on the mid-lake humps. And the pike fishing on Mendota has really started to pick up with some of these cooler nights. The, those fish are starting to respond to the, the fall temps that are on their way, and they're starting to starting to bulk up for, for winter. Don't don't even mention ice fishing to me yet, Pat. I'm I'm I have, I have, I'm not ready for for ice fishing season. Uh, but you mentioned uh, bass there. Uh, what uh, what what are some good ways to go after bass here? I know they're they're pretty aggressive fish in general. But you know, looking at looking at the Madison Lakes, what's some what's some good tips for going after bass? Well, if you're looking for largemouth bass, you're going to find a lot of those fish in shallower water. Um, and using, and if they're in shallow water, you're going to find a lot of weeds still this time of year. So a topwater bait that uh, is kind of weedless is going to keep, keep, uh, the weeds off the hooks. And, uh, you know, a topwater frog is a great option and a lot of fun to fish those for largemouth bass. Smallmouth bass, you're going to find those fish, like I said, uh, out on mid lake humps and on breaks near shore where you're going to find rocks that, uh, uh, move into deeper water. And those fish are going to be, um, they'll grab a jig with a minnow on or a, or a night crawler. They'll grab um, crankbaits. They'll grab just about anything that you put in front of them because they're also, you know, starting to try to bulk up for winter here. All right, then moving down the line, looking at Lake Monona, what's been, uh, what's been happening there? Well, the, the bluegill bite out there has, uh, has been great all summer, and it continues to be that way. The bluegills, generally speaking, have moved off of the weeds and are almost exclusively suspended over deep water right now. So you could find those fish over 30 feet of water. You can find them over 70 feet of water, but all of those fish are going to be about 15 to 20 feet down in that thermocline where the warm water changes to cold, where they can feel the most comfortable, but they're suspended out over deep water and you can 
catch them right off the side of the boat, just drifting along uh, with a with a jig and a little worm or like a little spike or a little plastic. Um, like I said, 15 or 20 feet down, just drifting out there over the deep water, you'll you'll find bluegills. Um, but the other big bite out on Monona is the world class muskie fishery that we have out there. So, and the muskies, uh, like a lot of other fish, have sort of been responding to these shorter days and cooler nights moving in shallower, and um, that bite has really picked up. I've been hearing about, hearing about quite a few muskies on Monona and Lake Wabisa that have been uh, getting caught lately. And do you have any advice for going after muskies there? I mean, like you said, it's pretty world-class muskie fishing here in, especially here in Dane County. I feel like we have tons of them right here, but they can, they can be a little bit of intimidating to go after. Do you have any advice there? Well, uh, like I said, you know, they're moved up shallow now, so tossing large lures is kind of the name of the game this time of year because those fish, like a lot of the other species, are hungry and looking to bulk up for winter. Uh, So larger lures tend to be uh, on the menu for those fish this time of year. And then also um, what a lot of folks use are live suckers. So I sell those at the shop, and they, you know, I sell them anywhere from 8 inches up to 12 but when we get closer to winter, folks will be looking for suckers that even tap out at 18 inches. And those are bait that they're using for these fish. So those fish really get hungry and are looking for looking for a big meal this time of year. That's some big bait there, 18 inches. Uh, so let's, uh, let's wrap this up. Let's look at one last body of water here, and let's go with Lake Wabisa. What's been happening over there? Well, Lake Wabisa is the other great muskie lake here on the chain, and uh, the muskie fishing over there has been uh, also pretty fantastic. Most of the fish coming out of the south end of the lake, there's a nice large uh, south bay down there uh, that uh, a lot of those muskies are cruising around in there looking for an easy meal. Um, But they're also getting perch and bluegills on the weed lines down there and some walleyes out from Babcock Park and then Hog Island, which is over just south of Lake Farm Park on the west end of the lake. All right, Pat, we are running up against the clock. So just to uh, sort of end things off here, do you have any final advice for the people fishing out there? Maybe some fall-themed fishing advice? Well, it's time to start thinking bigger. It's in the summertime. It can be, uh, you know, a lot of smaller lures that are getting fish, but uh, those fish are going to start looking for uh, larger meals this time of year. And so... Something uh, that represents that is probably going to be a good bet for almost every species out there. You heard it, folks. Go big or go home. Well, Pat, thank you so much for talking with me. You can hear an updated fishing report anytime you want. One simple, easy-to-remember number, 608-BIG-FISH. Pat, thank you so much again, and good luck out there. Thanks, Nate. Always a pleasure. Take care. It's 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. There are times when, if you're very lucky, you meet someone who changes your life for the better. For feature contributor Jennifer Fields, that person is Professor Anne Smart-Martin. 
Now, Martin is the Stanley and Polly Stone Chipstone. You see where this is going. Professor Emeritus of American Decorative Arts and Material Culture for the Art History Department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Now, their relationship spans just over a decade, and in all of that time, one thing has changed, and it's the addition of Emeritus to Professor Martin's title. In this edition of Radio Chipstone, Fields and Martin spent a lovely summer day chatting about where it all began. I had a scrapbook from the 1972 political election and also a collection of 50 cartoons from the Watergate era, so I definitely was interested in keeping things. But then it was also that these things were really important to me because my family moved a lot. Uh, My dad was a preacher. We moved every um, two to five years, and we we moved into parsonages, which were previously furnished. So I think part of it was just carrying the pieces of the past with us. It was my parents as well. And parts of your past that were your identity. There was a farm, my family farm, and um, they saved a lot. I mean, if you look around this room we're in, a couple of chests here, they were in the outbuildings, and we were able to salvage those from other places. So it's just always been part of my DNA, I think. When I was in high school, a friend of mine gave me this as a graduation present, and it's a little piece of ceramic um, that she made into a pincushion. And I've kept it ever since, and it turned out that it was really pretty old. That it was from the um, early 18th, um, excuse me, late 18th, early 19th century. And it turned out that this is the kind of stuff that I study, and I study now. So there is that, like I say, there are these strange but true, you know, overarching patterns. And that's kind of, maybe there's a reason kind of how this all fits together and why objects are so important to me. The first day in your class, you said, once you start to study material culture, the world will never look the same again to you. And it's true. When did that occur to you? You know, I think that's that's an excellent question. I mean, obviously, uh, I wasn't transported, you know, to another world. It wasn't magical. It was just that it was was really intellectual. I I, I was always interested in, and what can we know? Or what can this tell us? Or, Or... or kind of is it that there are other things about the thing in front of me? And, and I think that was just trying to figure things out. And I think those things maybe came together in that curiosity about the world and curiosity about things, but also this caring um, about them and that kind of curatorial sense. Can you ever separate the thing from the story? Well, my husband will say no. (laughs) Um, To me, if I, uh, can I separate the thing from a story? It's difficult um, because I look at at them and immediately I want to know something. Where was it made? Who made it? What what is the hand marks of the maker? Are there any? When was it manufactured? Where was it made? Where did it come from? How much did it cost? Um, Where has it been? Why do we still have it? Why do we care? And since I studied consumer behavior in the past, that really trips you up because it becomes about how does contemporary American marketers um, make us do things or asks us to put meanings on things that 
make us want to acquire them. And since I've studied that for now, I mean, I've studied it the last 200 years of that, 250 years of that, I think it's a, it's a good storyline for us today. Hence, you'll never look the same way at the world again, because when you look at a chair, you don't just see there's something to sit in, but it's something, if you start thinking about it, why does it look like that? And what is its purpose? Well, it's really just to remove the weight off your feet, but why didn't they do that before? So we think about chairs, we can really think about thrones, and that thrones were about demonstrating that you had power. Now think about the ways that the idea of chairs or seats, a chairman, of the, a chairman or chairwoman of the board, a county seat, um, all the ways in which this idea of power resides in the things that we sit in or the things we use to remove the weight off our feet have these different tangents. So you can look at what I like to say, um, hold function same and look for change, meaning that if we look at a chair and decide, okay, this is what it does, or this is what some of the aspects are, how does that change across time and what can you see in that? So how can you see that this doesn't look like this at all? Or they always have four chairs, but why do these have arms? Why is it made out of this kind of material? And then you can find, then you can start asking, what other, what other things do chairs do? Well, you can lift your, you can lift, put your head back. And, and when they started having these chairs with the big wings on them, like wing chairs, we think, oh, they were in the living room. No, they were for elderly people, keep them warm by the fire. And it gave them prestige and honor of the elderly, of the older people. So chairs are something you can just sort of keep pulling the strings on. In terms of teaching, that's another thing I like to do. I like to get people to think about ceramic plates. That's another thing. Okay, well, why do we need a plate? What does it look like? And so what I do is I have collected this kind of box or two of plates in the last... 200 years, and I'm able to, and there are all kinds, there's plastic, there's paper, there's wood, there's all different kinds of decorations, and I lay them all out on two or three big tables in my big class. I asked, this is pretty early on the semester, and I asked them to sort of start looking at them and, and looking for the clues. And so we think, I try to teach it like Sherlock Holmes. You know, what are the clues you can see from this thing in front of you? And is it a mark? Is it a is it a, some decoration? Is it a color? And then I asked them to group through them as best they can through time. And what would those clues be? And that really gets them to start talking and, and handing things around to each other, which I really like, because it, if you do it early in the semester, it breaks the ice, and it also gets them to start looking closely. And so out of that, you can begin to start thinking, okay, what information does this have, and how can we categorize it? What if you sort it by color? What if you sort it by decoration? And it really kind of engages the senses and tactility you can touch and flick with your fingernail and get some sound. And I like that as a way to unpack the ways in which we can think about objects, both analytically um, and as a way to sort of, a sensory way, um, see how we can intrigue.
that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors Jonah Chester and Tom Kamenik and Jennifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nick Wiggy helped produce this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. You can stay up to date with the WORT local news as a podcast. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Stay tuned and good night. <laughs>